Hi, I'm Sam Rocky. Welcome to our second edition of podcasts in our Ghost Light series. In these dark times, our focus shifts to new beginnings. If the first step is the hardest in any new endeavor, how do you muster the courage, the energy, and the resolution to take it? We'll be talking to a variety of fascinating people reflecting on how to begin. My guest this week is Dr. Alistair McQuenna. Alistair is the country director for Google based in Joburg, South Africa, and has worked with some of the most iconic brands and leading companies in the world, including Unilever, Mondelez, and Sad Mother. And most recently, he was the CEO of Ogilvy South Africa. And he has just completed his PhD from the Northwest University School of Business and has been made a professor of practice by the Johannesburg Business School. Welcome to the show. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be sitting with Ali McQuena. Ali, we met almost 15 years ago. Um, and it's awesome to be meeting again, even though it's virtually. Where do I find you in the world? Well, it's lovely to chat to you, Sam. I'm all the way in South Africa. And yeah, it has been more than 15 years since you and I worked together or even had a proper conversation. This is awesome. <laughs> so, Ali, I was reflecting back, actually, and one of the reasons I reached out to you is because, of course, as you say, we haven't had a proper conversation in 15 years, but we had a very important conversation to me 15 years ago. And I remember it so vividly. We were sitting outside in the sunshine. It was at VDE Cafe. I think I was probably drinking a cappuccino. And um, I was asking, you know, what are the influences in your life? And you spoke about your photography and the fact that you were able to use that as a way of seeing the world and you were able to express your creativity this way. And what was so important for me at that particular moment was not just this idea that as a really senior leader in a big organization, you were able to have a hobby, which sounded like, oh, my goodness, how did you get that right? But also the fact that I then started thinking about my own leadership development work in a very different way. And I really sort of thank you for that, because that was really the start of my own journey of seeing the importance of bringing in multiple perspectives. So thanks for that question, Sam. You're taking me back to my passion, my muse, which is photography. I think for me, I really think it's important to have balance. When we show up for these big roles that come with massive responsibility and lots of stress and anxiety, it's so important to find the things that actually make you happy, the things that give you peace, the things that remind you of your life purpose. And that for me has been photography. So it's not a career, it's just a passion. It's something that I try and make time for. For many people, like the the, the sort of the pandemic year has been able to like provide real breathing and reflective space, meaning like you actually have put a bit of work on pause. But in your case, you've done almost exactly the opposite. You've taken on a new role. You're now the head of Google in South Africa. You've just completed your PhD. You've been made two professors of practice, which is, I think, something I've not heard of before, which is amazing. And you're also a dad. Um, so how are you thinking about time? For the longest time, I thought the right thing to do was to pursue work-life balance because it's a phrase that people throw around quite glibly until somebody corrected me and said, balance is the Lady Justice uh, scale of 50-50. What you need to go after is alignment and not balance because if what you do is aligned to your life purpose, if what you do is in service of that which drives you, it doesn't matter how you split your time. You can actually spend 80% of your time pursuing work and 20% doing leisure and still feel fulfilled. You know, you could fill your life with 20 activities that give you energy as opposed to sap energy. So 
So the thing that drives me now is really alignment. Is what I'm doing linked to my life purpose, which is to touch lives and make a difference in the world. And if I can do that, I'm very, very happy. But also, I think mm. let's think about the various heads. Uh, you know, we wear not the Edward de Bono, um, you know, thinking heads, <laughs> but really uh, the roles we play um, in organizations. You know, when you're junior and you're starting out, you're an operator and you learn and you work your way up the ladder and then you become a, um, a manager and then eventually you become a leader. And as a leader, you know, most of what I do is set a vision, inspire the team, motivate the team, play the role of a coach. But another significant part of my role as a leader is thought leadership. Now, thought leadership is about sharing everything that you know. And how can you possibly share if you're an empty vessel? You know, like a lot of people say, uh, those that do not read should not lead. So, so I'm trying <laughs> to make it my business to read. Um, and also out of necessity, you know, when you work for a highly coveted organization such as Google, first of all, we hire the best in the world, uh, present company excluded. Um, we <laughs> hire course. the best in the world. So we're surrounded by really smart people. And, uh, yeah. and I think, you owe it to them to kind of, you know, polish up on your knowledge, to constantly develop yourself. And also society is asking leaders to share their perspectives. So, yeah, well, that I mean, that's great. And and would you say that that's where you spend sort of a lot of your joyful time is in this pursuit of knowledge and even beyond that understanding? Yeah. So and I think maybe this is a bit of an occupational hazard, but I spent 24 years of my career understanding how to position brands. And I've also learned that I must take my own medicine. So in thinking about my own personal brand positioning, you know, you you spend time thinking about what is your unique selling proposition. So I've kind of defined myself as the conduit between academia and industry, because very often we like, you know, uh, sort of professionals uh, or practitioners, we often lament the fact that we don't spend enough time researching and understanding the latest conversations around key topics. Um, and then when you speak to academics, they, they also lament the fact that they don't spend enough time in industry. So mm. somebody has to make it their business to to kind of draw the two worlds close together. So I decided that uh, my humble contribution, whether to industry or academia, is to find, you know, the most difficult question at any point in time in the industry, or at least the most pertinent question, and then make it my business to research it and try and venture an opinion on it. So I'll give you an example. When it was time for me to think about an MBA, because, you know, the time does come, where you're like, hmm, maybe, yeah. I, should, maybe I should do an MBA. <laughs> I need to fill this business card. It's looking too pale. <laughs> so then I thought, well, I'm going to base my dissertation on, uh, at the time I was running um, creative agencies, ad agencies like FCB and Ogilvy. And I thought the single biggest issue at the time, this was probably about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, is storytelling. Storytelling was starting mm. to take uh, prominence and center stage uh, because consumers were kind of growing tired of educational, functional, boring advertising, and they were looking for stories. And as we know, stories tend to be more sticky. They tend to travel. They tend to be much more memorable and fun than facts, right? So I, I based my MBA dissertation on the impact of storytelling advertising on advertising effectiveness. Um, and that was that was quite useful to the industry, useful to my job. It made mm. me very effective in my role. Uh, it You know, I, I often call my research projects a cheat sheet because when people are sleeping at night or, you know, watching Netflix with a glass of wine, which is not a bad thing to do, I sometimes just decide to dedicate that time to just reading and just skilling myself so I can sound, uh, you know, really smart the next morning in a meeting or I can just ping a few people, a couple of pools of wisdom that actually are sitting in academic journals. So that's kind of what I do. 
Alistair, I can see you um, because obviously we are on video, but I mean, you, your face just lights up when you're describing this, both your practice and your discipline, actually, because what you're describing is a, a series of real decisions about how to spend your time. Um, and one thing that we've noticed working with very senior leaders is that, you know, the context is always sort of one step ahead. And, you know, how people learn or develop themselves into the new context, I think, is the challenge of the 21st century. So your your kind of love of lifelong learning and the fact that you put it into practice really is an inspiration. So do you remember, you know, what are the roots of this? Like, where, where did it start? I mean, do you have a, a memory of where you thought, hang on, this is actually what I am going to do in my life? Okay, full transparency. My mom is a retired varsity professor. So... <laughs> She's co-authored okay. about 15, 15 books. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, there's no transparency needed for that. That's fantastic to hear. Okay, so there's a kind of maternal influence, there there which is. as a mother pleases me so much. There is. And also, Sam, when I was about five or six years old, I remember my paternal grandparents graduating um, from university. Um, you know, they were both educators. You know, they were yeah. headmasters, yeah, principals of, of, of schools or headmaster and headmistress and, you know, and grandparents and graduation gowns. So that's stuck in my head. Yeah. And I remember, yeah. you know, um, you know, my, so, so my, my dad was a professional, um, you know, footballer. And when that ended, he got into business and so on. And my mom was always sort of an academic. And, uh, so, you know, I was exposed to both business as well as academic, mm. um, interests. And I suppose, I've kind of assimilated into both worlds, if you like. Well, I'm just marveling at the the fact that you can have uh, the same amount of time as all of the rest of us, but yet you seem to fit more in. Ali, can I just change a little bit and think about some of the conversations that you've mentioned? I mean, you've worked with some of the leading brands in the world, and um, the work that you've done has been deep and meaningful, and it's all, there's always been a sort of social impact. But I'm just curious, I mean, these companies, Unilever, SAB Miller, Mondelez, Ogilvy, and so on, and now Google, where have you seen the magic lie in these organizations? Why do people stay and work for these sorts of corporations? What's going on in your experience? So these companies that you've described, Unilever, SAB, Miller, Mondelez, Ogilvy, uh, Google, and them, they are defined by a, a performance culture. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. a, an obsession with excellence and results and superior uh, returns. Um, so, you know, they tend to attract suckers for punishment, people that just really want to excel, you know, and, and perhaps, you know, like all of us, you know, have a voice in our heads telling us you've, you've got to push harder, you can achieve it, not even the sky's the limit. So... So what drew me to those organizations was this performance culture. Two, products that work and products that uh, deliver, but also products that play a meaningful role in society. If you take Unilever, you know, when I say Unilever, the first word that comes to mind is sustainability. And they've been true to that, you know, and and many other organizations. How do you, first of all, how do you leave the, the value chain sustainable? How do you extract from the world and give back to the world? You know, how do you leave the world a better place? If I look at companies, the big tech companies like Google, for example, Google's, you know, has this big mission, which is to organize the world's information and kind of make it usable, accessible and, you know, and useful to everybody. So so you'll see Google spending quite a bit of their effort and resources in uh, using their technology and their products to actually help society for free. So. Mm. So, so that, that actually attracts me. Being purpose-led, I think for many organizations ends up being a bit of a sideshow or ends up being like a CSI thing as opposed to being very core, central and germane to your existence. So I think if you, if you see purpose as being linked to your license to trade, 
it really influences how you see business, how you approach business, the kind of value system that you inculcate and reward, the kind of things you will not tolerate. Uh, and I think it's important to be famous for hiring uh, the best talent because everybody wants mm. to work with smart people. But also you need to be famous for training them really well. So a lot of people are drawn to these organizations because they're called the universities or the t- training ground of the industry. And lastly, yeah. you've, you've got to be famous for looking after your people. So when you speak to other people about Russell, oh, so 15 years, that's that's great innings. You know, how did that happen? They're like, they look after us. And you ask, like, yeah. what, does that, what does that mean, you know? Um, and, and there's so many examples. The value system is aligned to mine. The purpose is aligned to mine. Um, I've done a different role every two or three years in this organization because, you know, my personal development and my own journey matters. So, yeah, so it's really that. It's purpose-driven. Um, it's product that works for customer centricity. I think when we're all clear that we have to go back to first principles, we exist in a business, we exist in an organization because we're here to solve a need and actually serve. And if that is your mantra, then customer centricity is, is not a difficult thing to achieve. You know, um, mm. you train all your guns on meeting the customer or the consumer's need. And then everything just, just kind of revolves around that. So, yeah. I kind of love that description of sort of training everything on the on the customer, and that's hugely important. And I think equally, though, um, these big organizations, I mean, the sort of reputational challenges pop up all the time, don't they? Because once you're so big, you're in the in the kind of eye. Um, so what do they have to fight against? I think when you're a very successful organization and your brands are market leaders in the categories where you compete and where you play, complacency creeps in. Um, you think you've got the magic formula. You know, you don't think you, you have to innovate and do anything different. Perhaps you might have a renovation program, but not an innovation program because you're like, well, if it ain't broke, why fix it? But therein lies the danger because digital technology comes in and disrupts the entire thing and causes, you know, discontinuity of innovation. So I think complacency is a big issue to kind of watch against. And as you grow and as you scale, an erosion of your value system, erosion of your culture could happen. So you either jealously protect the culture that made you successful or you purposefully kind of let the culture evolve uh, because culture is also context bound. So you let the culture evolve, you manage it purposely and you lead it in a certain direction. I also think that being successful and big can sometimes, you know, result in inertia or lack of agility. Uh, You need to be nimble. You need to be able to turn the ship around very quickly to to use an analogy. And I think legacy systems that you've spent a lot of money building you know, might also feel like, a, you know, maybe I shouldn't ditch this technology. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, stop using that. But really, today we're competing with small, nimble, agile players who don't do mm. everything internally, by the way. This notion of partner ecosystems is a real point of difference today. Outsourcing what you're not great at, or you might have been good at it, but it's not your core business anymore. Outsourcing what slows you down. Outsourcing what sucks up a lot of resources uh, from innovation and devotes it to renovation. Renovation is not going to help you win the race. You have to leapfrog your competition. You need to disrupt yourself. You need to attack yourself. And you need new energy and new thinking. And I think sometimes uh, businesses that are successful might not always be open to attracting a diverse workforce that brings a very, very different um, approach and a different ethos, if you like. You know, if you're working for a corporate are you likely to embrace somebody from a young startup that doesn't conform to, you know, command and control, for example, you know? Um, and if we think mm. back 
to McGregor's uh, theories of human motivation. You know, is this theory X where you don't trust people, you inherently have a you know lack of trust in your employees working from home, so you insist on multiple meetings just so you can keep tabs on them and keep them meaningfully occupied, or do you subscribe to theory Y, which says hire the best people, trust them, remove blockages and obstacles, um, be a coach to them, look after their well-being. Um, give them time and space to really focus on the outputs and don't worry about, you know, chasing them on inputs. And Ali, I mean, I heard a, a fantastic podcast, actually, where you were talking about some of the work that Google's doing to enable small businesses, get online, become digital. Can you talk a little bit about this kind of stakeholder or partnership ecosystem and and how you see big businesses like Google, for example, working with small businesses, you know, in this, this kind of theory of abundance that yeah. there's enough for all of us? Yeah. So, I mean, let's take the digital economy in Africa. Africa has 1.2 billion people, but only 330 million Africans are on the Internet. Somebody has to close that digital gap. So we've got a big, ambitious uh, program to A, help with connectivity issues, infrastructure issues. Uh, we, we can't do that on our own. We have to partner with, let's say, companies like Epiano that lay, you know, fiber cables undersea to connect Europe to Africa, for example. We've got an ambitious target of training millions and millions um, of small businesses and equipping them with digital skills. We can't do that ourselves. So we have to rely on partners to help us scale. We also cannot give wide love treatment to every customer out there. Uh, we love all our customers, but we are limited in terms of our reach. So again, we mm. rely on partners who have dedicated resources, who've got the scale. Um, you know, also when you want to drive geographic expansion, you can't physically put up an office everywhere, but your partners can do that on your behalf. So, so yeah, so this notion of having a very closed um, ecosystem just doesn't serve us going forward. You have to be open. So, so you need to find people that are like-minded. You need to invest in training them, upskilling them, you know, so that there's consistency of service delivery um, that has your brand attached to it. I think uh, we've also seen um, the uh, kind of explosion of e-commerce. A lot of businesses that had put digital transformation on the back burner, you know, didn't see COVID coming, didn't see lockdown, didn't see reduced mobility coming, didn't see the limitations of bricks and mortar businesses. So, you know, they had to develop e-commerce capability overnight. They had to invest in delivery capability. I and mean, how do you get food delivered to people? We haven't got a fleet of cars or, or, or like scooters and stuff. And do you rely on, uh, you know, aggregators that provide delivery services or do you do it yourself? So there's been quite a few um, of those questions asked. And also, I was privileged to judge the BCX Digital Innovation Awards last year. And we had the small business category and the large business category. And winners of each category were all e-commerce businesses that were able to to grow like, I don't know, 100x uh, because they were geared um, for e-commerce, they were geared for delivery and all of that. So they could do what traditional legacy businesses couldn't do. Fantastic. I mean, that's so inspiring. I mean, the scale of your ambition, it's huge. But um, of course, as you say, once you're in an ecosystem that allows you to, to kind of realize yeah. that, that's amazing. That must be hugely exciting for you. It's awesome. The idea it's of what, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. So, but also, you know, when you ask me about the secret source of successful organizations, organizations that, that, that really care about making a meaningful difference in society tend to get a lot of loyalty from their employees because, mm -hmm. you know, you are proud now to say, I work for this organization that's helping keep people safe. 
when when COVID hit, governments turned to tech companies like like Google and Facebook and them and said, listen, help us understand people mobility, you know, help us understand how do we keep people productive um, at home. So, you know, you've got the technology. Can you give us access to technology to help us continue with education programs, for example? So the need to train teachers on kind of Google Classroom tools to teach kids digital skills so they could continue learning even though they were under severe lockdown in their homes. Then there was also mm. the thing around we need to develop a COVID exposure notification app, um, you know, to alert people if they're in the proximity of somebody who's declared their, you know, uh, sort of positive results anonymously, obviously. So we got involved in those kind of things. And then uh, and then I think halfway through last year, government started thinking about, well, we need to uh, reboot our economy. So economic recovery became a thing. And, uh, and we had to step in and support. So training small businesses, you know, making sure that we support businesses with transitioning them from bricks and mortar physical businesses into digital businesses. A, you know, they, they could carry on transacting with their customers, helping businesses expand geographically, giving them access to markets, giving them tools and solutions. So that's the stuff that we've been doing. And it fills a lot of our employees with pride and, and satisfaction mm. to know that the technology that they use every day in a commercial enterprise can actually also be used to make a difference in society, the society that we live in. And I think as you're speaking, I mean, it sort of, you know, dawns on me that so much of the conversation is the vilifying of the of the big tech companies, the idea that, you know, the, the focus is on what they're not doing well. But as you described, of course, that's not true. I mean, that's that's a very small part of the huge impact that they've had, especially during the pandemic. I mean, you know, thank goodness for technology on every level. Yeah, and I think I think it's really important for us as organizations to support the communities that our employees find themselves in to respond to things that are happening in society, you know, um, things like Black Lives Matter, you know, stuff like that. Uh, you have to get involved and make a difference. And if, uh, you know, people are, are struggling to access services, you know, how do you help service providers, you know, stay in touch with, with their constituencies in their, in, in their communities? Just on, on that sort of question of the ecosystem and working in the community actually where your where your product or service is having an impact i mean what voices are you listening to at the moment like where are they coming from so there's a an engineering professor at university of Joburg. he's the vice chancellor of the university professor chilizi marala i'm reading two of his books so this is the one book it's about leading yeah. in the 21st century um so it's leadership implications you know, for uh, the digital age. And then he's got another one called Closing the Gap, which is about the digital divide. You know, so how do we how do we train communities and people and professionals and organizations with these skills? And I'm really loving, you know, his kind of perspective on things. Like he's a he's a leading thinker and scholar on uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and not uh, artificial intelligence for technology's sake, but how do you use it as a tide that lifts all boats, you know, how do you achieve social impact? How do you bridge the economic income and social divide? How do you ensure that nobody's left behind as we march into the fourth industrial revolution? You know, so, so I like that. It's, it's a constant reminder that we do what we do for the advancements of society, for the upliftment of, of people, you know, yes, you make money in the process. Fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, you really want to be remembered for for making a positive impact. So yeah, so I like I like what Professor you know Chilis Malumbi you know sort of Marwala is doing and the stuff that he cares about. So that's kind of what I'm reading at the moment. I'm, I'm reading two of his books over and above everything that I do. 
<laughs> which we'll include, by the way, in the, in the biography of this uh, podcast. But it's interesting, I saw in the first book that you showed me, the title was Leadership in Africa. And I, I'm just interested, Alistair, is what do you think the world should be paying attention to in relation to leadership in Africa? I think the reality is uh, 60% of Africa's population is the youth below the age of 24. By 2050, half of the world youth will be coming from Africa. Half of the world youth population by 2050 will be Africans. And uh, and the youth are digital uh, natives. So they're early adopters of technology. If we can remove structural barriers, if we can remove obstacles in their way, if we can arm them with digital skills and, and technology, these young people will actually change the trajectory of Africa. I think the, the youthful energy coming coming out of Africa should really be a, a center, you know, sort of a focus, not only for venture capitalists, but for anybody who wants to invest in the future potential of Africa. It really starts with the youth. And I mean, we have a focus um, in, in our economic recovery um, sort of efforts. We have, we have a focus on small business because small business in our country employ about 48% of the labor force. You know, one person just has to be an entrepreneur and they hire five, six, ten people and they get two, three other accounts signed up and they double and they treble their size. So we believe the most effective way to turn Africa's fortunes around is to really focus on supporting small business and supporting the youth. And then um, equal to that is also the role of women in um, sort of economic success of this continent the role of women has been neglected the world over. We see it in Africa. Africa, uh, for the longest time, has been a very patriarchal society. And um, and I think there's a lot of arrested development as a result of that. So unleashing the potential of and the role of women in business, in organizations, unleashing the, the potential and the and, and able the contribution of the youth, I think are two massive, massive sources of opportunity going forward. And of course, the word unleashing is such an energizing word. It's a kind of real propulsion a kind of a way of sort of just fast Absolutely. forwarding everything yeah and also implicit in the word unleashing is the potential exists you know the deep yeah, smarts are there you know the yeah. resourcefulness is there uh, these people are creating successful businesses um already you know so it's not a question of you know somebody has to come and rescue the youth of africa it's about the potential is there, is there the deep smarts is there the intellect is there the iq eq is all there it's just about access to markets, to resources, and just, you know, yeah. Well, Ali, it sounds certainly like in your role that you kind of have a way of having that impact, which is hugely exciting and very sort of very hopeful. I'm just going to ask you two last questions. The first is really, where is your source of optimism coming from at the moment? You know, I remember around 2010, I went to visit cocoa plantation farmers in Ghana, you know, I was working for Cadbury for Mondelez at the time, and I think about 80% of Cadbury's or Mondelez's cocoa at the time came came from the cocoa plantations of West Africa. And we just spending time with the cocoa farm workers and farmers to understand their world. And, and it dawned on me that, you know, these people trade um, their cocoa on the world market um, as a commodity, but they don't have access to technology platforms. And I was just thinking that, that if farm workers or farmers have access to a smartphone, you know, they could take over the entire, you know, uh, transaction. They could deal directly, you know, with the markets, with the end user and really improve their margin in the process. And they could, you know, look at all sorts of resources, um, you know, how to look after crops better. So there's just so much help and support and knowledge on the Internet that if people don't have access to the Internet, 
they 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 are massively disadvantaged. So for me, the the really exciting thing today is being in a tech world. The power and the ability of technology to be the ultimate equalizer. You know, if I look at kids today um, on smartphones and tablets and stuff, and how just how intuitive they are, you know, and how they just use these devices, and their knowledge has grown enormously. So, just the power of connectivity and people just having access to the internet um, is just so so you know sort of inspiring and encouraging for me. It it makes me feel like I'm doing the right thing. I'm in the right space. If I want to make a visible change and impact in the world, I have to understand you know, the the potential that lies in technology and I have to make it my business to channel that, you know, potential in the right direction. So, so yeah, that, that's kind of where I get my inspiration from. Well, I'm also just thinking, I mean, smartphones are just barely over 10 years old. I mean, and what's happened in a decade. So this, this kind of vision of closing the gap between 330 million and I think you said 1.7 billion people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. a big gap, but a lot has happened in a decade. So technology Absolutely. really has huge potential. And also Africa's population will double by 2050. Sorry, so by 2050, Africa's population will be about 2.5 billion, um, which is which is, which is is massive. Now, imagine 2.5 billion users or consumers or customers. There's so much potential for any product and brand and service out there. But there's equally as much potential for people who are who care about creating employment and creating jobs and creating mm. businesses. Mm. Um, I really feel that uh, there's, there's massive potential there. Well, Ali, I mean, you've left us on such a hopeful note, and I feel so excited about the potential of, of the technology and also yourself in a role like this to come at it with uh, where we started, really, which is a real attention to nature, a real focus on, you know, doing the right thing and it aligned to your own personal purpose and personal impact. In the light of that, if you had to leave our listeners with one piece of creative advice, I'm talking to you now as a man who's been in marketing for almost most of your career, is there anything from the creative area that we can draw on? (laughs) Do you have a piece of advice? (laughs) For me, the ultimate, like, pearl of wisdom is what Teddy Roosevelt said, uh, you know, decades and decades ago, which is people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care, you know, and, and that also applies today. It applies to the creative industry where, you know, our creatives coming up with ideas that serve the world, that make an impact, uh, that show compassion, that show a desire to uplift lives, you know. So I think that uh, matching your commercial ambition with compassion is such an important thing, you know. Um, yeah, I just think people need to know how much you care and then they'll be interested in, yeah. in the deep smarts you bring to the party. You know, they'll, they'll care about your innovativeness and your creative and your technological firepower. But unless they know that you care, they might be suspicious of your motives. Well, that's brilliant. And I mean, compassion, I think, is is what so many people have shown during the pandemic. And, you know, it's been a very compassionate time, actually, for lots of people. So it's a very important word. And I I couldn't agree more that that is absolutely needing to be hardwired in our organizations, in our leaders, Um, this idea that compassion and caring is the starting point. Well, Ali, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. And I really do appreciate it. It's a huge pleasure. And, and thanks for, you know, this opportunity. It was great to, to reconnect with an old friend, but also the opportunity to talk about things that I really care about. Thank you. I feel like I've just had a therapy session. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this was extremely cathartic. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> Thank you, Ali. 
You've been listening to Ghost Lights, a podcast by Thompson Harrison. Thompson Harrison is a leadership and organization development consulting business where we bring experience, expertise, and a uniquely creative approach to offer highly specialized leadership and organization development consultancy. Thompson Harrison is skilled at designing successful ways for leaders to embrace new ideas and remain dynamic. We work with senior leaders and their teams to transform their organizations in response to a fluid context and a changing set of stakeholder expectations. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.